Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Today to have not only one, but two doctors and autoimmune researchers here on the Arthritis Life podcast, Dr. Mike Senich and Dr. Jane Bruckner. Thank you so much for being here. Great for having us. Yeah. Can you both just really quickly tell me how about uh, Dr. Buckner first, uh, where do you live and what is your relationship to arthritis? Sure. I, I live in Seattle, Washington, and I'm a rheumatologist. I've been practicing rheumatology now for almost 30 years. Um, and so I, over that time, have gotten to know many, many people with arthritis and been involved in their care. That's incredible. Thank you for continuing in the field. I know burnout is an all-time high, so we appreciate anyone in rheumatology. Um, and Dr. Micah Sunich, what about you? Where I know I know where you live, but for the audience, where do you live and what is your relationship to arthritis? I live in West Seattle um, for a while, the unintentional island. Um, and I actually grew up in West Seattle. Um, and my relationship to arthritis, I'm actually a pulmonologist. I'm a lung doctor. And actually my specialty within lung disease is seeing people who have autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis who develop lung disease, um, which can be a pretty significant uh, and serious consequence. So that's, that's where I see patients uh, in, this, in this realm and really feel strongly about you know, trying to figure out things to, to improve that. Yeah, that's wonderful. And yeah, that's one of those things that you don't realize when you get diagnosed with something like rheumatoid arthritis, you a lot of times as a patient, you know, I'll say myself focus so much on the joints because you kind of fixate on this word arthritis. You don't kind of understand until you've had it for a while or till it can kind of progress that, it, oh, wow, this affects my whole body, you know, not just my joints. So uh, I'm going to stop myself from like asking you a million COVID related questions because <laughs> I know there, that, we, that may be another episode, but um. I love learning, you know, before we're, we're going to delve today into like the latest research being done in the autoimmune space, which is just very exciting and why patient engagement and research, you know, is important. But first, um, I always like to hear, you know, how and why did you choose, uh, I'll go with Dr. Buckner first, why did you choose to become a doctor and, uh, and researcher and specialize in autoimmune? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. We all have different paths to our career. Um, and I was really interested in science and that interest in college actually became one that I was very interested in, in biomedical research. So I went to medical school and I had no, no focus on arthritis per se, but I had the really good fortune of uh, doing a, a rotation um, and taking care of patients with arthritis, particularly uh, patients in the hospital with really serious diseases like systemic lupus. 
I found those patients fascinating. Also, I was really engaged with them and how they manage their chronic diseases. And also the fact that these diseases affect your whole body made it particularly interesting to me. So when I went on through my medical training, I focused more on uh, the rheumatic diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, and found that that was an area where, that had so many questions that needed to be answered. And there was so much need for patients with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and other autoimmune diseases that kind of became my ambition and my life's work to understand these diseases so that we could actually treat them better and as we're going to talk about at the end, could we prevent them and cure them? That's that's so exciting. And I'm always just grateful that anyone chooses this field because I would find it very overwhelming myself if I was having to do the, the biomedical side and the research side. Um, and what about you, Dr. Micah Senek, Carmen? <laughs> yeah, um, I think quite similar to Jane, I was always really interested in science and that definitely developed um, when I was an undergraduate. I think the immune system is fascinating. I mean, it's sort of like a, I don't know, it's at a simplest level, I think of it as us versus them, you know, our immune system against the world. Um, and so I think that's just a really interesting dynamic. Um, I also think the lung is a really cool organ. I mean, it interfaces with our environment constantly, right? I mean, we have summer season where we have smoke and we've got to manage that and, you know, all these different things that we come across. Um, so I think that's sort of what drew me to the lung specifically. Um, and research is one of those things where when I see patients, I really have a hard time just not understanding why or not trying to understand why. I, we have patients with the same disease who have different manifestations in their lungs. You can have rheumatoid arthritis and have different things happen to your lung and, and why that is we don't understand. And there's just so many questions and a big need and so I think I'm really driven to try to help understand some of those whys. I mean, that's incredible. You just like literally blew my mind when you said how the organ or the lung is like connected to our environment. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think about the fact that it's just air. It's, yeah, that's that's amazing. And I, I remember in eighth grade when they brought for the drug education, they brought to our school two lungs, like a lung of somebody who was a longtime smoker and a lung that somebody of somebody who didn't. And that really left an impression on me personally. And um, so uh, that, that, but, you know, we can't always, we can control our choices like, you know, smoking, but we can't always control some of the environmental exposures. But anyway, um, so I would love to hear from, from both of you just, you know, taking the 20,000 foot view about what are, what's some of the latest research in the autoimmune disease space that people with rheumatoid arthritis or other rheumatic diseases might be really interested in? Who would you like to have start? Oh, why don't you go? We'll go in the same order. Why? I'll go. I'll go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things to think about is what's really exciting now. And, um, as I said, I've been doing this a long time and, and the progress we've made in understanding these diseases is incredible. And the rate at which we're making discoveries is, is amazing to me. Uh, things I wouldn't have imagined 10 or 15 years ago. But one of the things we know about autoimmune diseases, uh, particularly uh, arthritis, is that they are diseases that are multifactorial. There's you know, we know that they run in families, so there's genetic risk, and we've been trying to uh, understand that over the last 20 years since we sequenced the genome. We also knew there were environmental factors, and that touches on what Carmen just talked about, that there were some other triggers out there, because not everyone in the family, not even identical twins, all get these diseases. What I really think is exciting right now is that we're finally getting uh, more of a handle on understanding how environmental factors are driving diseases and actually how they influence the way our genes are, are being changed by the environment in a way that leads to some of these diseases. And we could have never done that without a couple of things. One is we had to understand the genome. <laughs> we had to develop tools to actually understand how the genomes controlled 
And then we had to start studying human beings and their environmental factors. And that takes a lot of work. And we're finally doing that in a way that can help us look at people at high risk for a disease and what happens to them over time that maybe causes the disease or causes flares of the disease. So I think we're at an exciting pivotal time of integrating our understanding of genetics and the immune system, but how the environment is do, is contributing to that. That's really exciting. And then just for the, the audience, when you say environment, do you mean just things like smoke or do you also mean like, let's say encountering like a virus or something? Absolutely. Like that? okay. That's a great question. When I mean environment, I mean the viruses you may have been exposed to. There's some exciting data in that realm right now, just uh, in the last several years. Your microbiome, those you know, bugs that live on your body and in your gut that aren't causing trouble, but are actually interacting with your body and your immune system. But the smoke, we know smoking itself can increase your risk of rheumatoid arthritis twofold. Um, and then what we eat, and how much sunlight we see, all sorts of things are the environment. And, and, and I guess getting a handle on that and being able to start to dissect that is something I'm really excited about and think will bring us uh, so much more knowledge and ability to, to help patients in the future. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, what would you add to that, Dr. Micah Senich? Well, I think, I mean, Jane, no, you're fine. You're, um, I think Jane really highlighted some of the interesting things that um, are important to the field right now. One of the things I think about a lot is there's sort of two stages um, because of some of these factors Jane mentioned, and one is sort of prevention versus treatment. And I am hopeful that really kind of big picture wise, We'll do a better job of having biomarkers or other clues where we can develop better ideas of who to predict. Um, we'll develop certain diseases um, and then be able to intervene. Um, I think that that's another um, potential big area. Yeah, and along those lines, I know something I keep hearing about, you know, thrown around is the idea of like precision medicine. I guess it relates exactly to what you were saying, but also once you've predicted who's going to get it or you know who has it, predicting which medicines will work best. It does sometimes feel like we're throwing darts at the dartboard. Once you've failed one or two, like I'm on my fifth biologic right now in 20 years. I remember talking to my rheumatologist and like in the beginning, it was like in 2003, it was like, okay, we're starting you on a TNF inhibitor. You know, this is, that's what's available. <laughs> and then um, after methotrexate. And then as the years, like as you've, it's like, if this, then this, a little decision-making chart, you know, like they have from the American College of Rheumatology. But once you get further down the chart, it's like you're, you're trying to beat time. Do you know what I'm saying? With like, there's not as much data of like, if you failed a TNF inhibitor and then you failed Arencia and then another one, then do you do the JAK inhibitor or do, you know, all that stuff? So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm like uh, kind of word salad here, but do you, do you think that we're gonna, we're on the way like in the next 10 years to really have a better idea of who's gonna do better on which medication. You know, you raise a central point, Cheryl. This is my clinic and this is the big issue my patients face and I face as one of their doctors. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important. And it's one of the things we are focusing at at uh, the Benarite Research Institute is, is this concept of trying to find the right drug at the right time. And um, that means we need to start focusing on uh, understanding how patients differ and how they respond to drugs differently and when to use them. And, and so that's, that's an area of research that I think many of us in the field are very focused on. And then it also gets us to this question that was just raised about prevention, because that is going to change the game, we think, in terms of allowing us to stop progression of disease before you get into that cycle of having to change drugs all the time. And um, there's new studies that are being done both in type 1 diabetes, where we've seen quite a bit of success, but also in rheumatoid arthritis very recently, suggesting that we may be able to intervene early enough to prevent progression. So that's where a lot of excitement, a lot of my excitement, and I think the field's excitement is right now. That, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. I, um, 
and that gives people a lot of hope, you know, because sometimes people get really scared if the first or second medicine they try, you know, doesn't work. And um, sometimes I'll, I'll just remind them, you know, we don't, or I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I'll say something like, you know, typically like there isn't a perfect way of predicting which one's going to work for you, but there are a number of people who the first couple classifications of meds that they tried didn't fit their body right for whatever reason. And then the third or fourth one is like the home run, you know, mm -hmm. and works for 10 years or something. So um, it, there's reason to still have hope, you know? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think you state that that's a story I, you know, I'll talk my patients through when I start them, I'll say, I can't guarantee this is going to work for you, but if it doesn't, we'll move on to another drug. And we have a lot of options. That's what's wonderful about practicing rheumatology today. When I started, it was before we had TNF inhibitors. So that was a very different world. My waiting room had wheelchairs in it. It doesn't anymore. And that's great news. But it still seems silly to me to have to play, basically say, I'm guessing what drug to give you. And, and my goal and the goal of the other scientists is let's not guess anymore. We need to be able to say what drug's the right drug for you before we just try it out. So that's, that's the goal. I think we're getting, we're moving towards that. That's, that's super exciting. Yeah. And yeah, speaking of that, speaking of what we're moving towards. So you're both at the Benaroya Research Institute. I'm sorry, I didn't even say that initially. So, you, um, and the Benaroya Research Institute is an amazing um, place just in my backyard here in the Seattle area. And um, you are researching all sorts of conditions in, a, in including rheumatology, rheumatic diseases. And so I'm really curious about um, Dr. Mikasenich's HIPCRV uh, clinical study. Don't, don't tune out. We're going to explain what the acronym is. <laughs> and figuring out such a practical issue, which is literally how do people with rheumatoid arthritis respond to the common colds, like upper respiratory infections, which I'm so excited. Like, I feel like it's 2023. We've put a man on the moon. Like, how do we not know about the common cold or whatever? But anyway, so um, can you tell, you know, you're studying people with and rheumatoid arthritis and without. Um, can you tell me a little bit more ab about this? What are you learning? And what are, is there anything patients can do to get involved? Yeah, I'd love to tell you about it. So HIPCRV is Human Immunology Project Consortium Respiratory Virus. So our study is one of a few studies around the country that was funded by the National Institutes of Health. But what we are focusing on is how people really do respond to the common cold. So we know that people with rheumatoid arthritis can have, again, we talked about these environmental influences that might affect their disease progression. And we believe some of this happens at the lung surface, the mucosal surface. Jane said, when people smoke, we know that increases risk times two, right? So we think something's happening at the level of the lung with the way the immune system starts to recognize self rather than virus, for instance. And so what we're doing is we're monitoring people's responses, their immune responses before and during a cold and after by doing simple things like nasal swabs, but it's amazing what we can do with a nasal swab because we can detect the exact viruses, we can detect your immune response, how your cells are responding. Um, we follow things in the blood to see how your blood's responding to the virus, but actually how your blood is also responding to self um, or these autoantigens people develop in rheumatoid arthritis. And we think that by having the before, during, and after, we're gonna really understand how the immune response um, may change um, over the course of that infection. And we're comparing people who are on TNF inhibitors or not to see how that might influence your response to the common cold, because obviously medications can have some effects on how your immune system might respond to these viruses. That's so exciting. Is that something people can enroll in um, from anywhere or do you have to be in the Seattle area or you know, local-ish? So we collect our samples here at Benaroya Research Institute, um, First Hill here in Seattle. Certainly our participation's open to anyone who would want to be involved. Um, several, there's a few in-person visits, but some of the nasal swaps and such, while people are feeling unwell, they can collect at home. 
So we're really encouraging anyone with interest um, to join. Um, we do have a uh, link on our website that um, people can email us if they have any interest and we can, you know, go back and forth and determine if they'd be a good fit for the study. That's so exciting. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to sign up. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Is there anything, Dr. Buckner, you would want to add to, to uh, that particular study? Uh, you know, what I, I think is exciting is this is a chance to bring questions that across the country people have been asking about viruses and how they impact how people respond to them. And Carmen's study is taking it straight to rheumatoid arthritis, where we're going to look at the impact with people with rheumatoid arthritis and also how their lungs are functioning, which is, I think, an understudied and under-understood, but very, very important thing about people's health who have rheumatoid arthritis. So um, we're really excited about it, really excited about uh, partnering with patients who have rheumatoid arthritis as part of this study. Um, it takes all of us to, to actually do this work. Yeah, and I think one of the, um... Yeah, a lot of people when they first start their medications for rheumatoid arthritis are worried about, you know, the warnings on all the medications about, you know, you're going to, this might increase your risk of, increase your risk of infections, increase, I'm, I'm, la I'm having a smile on my voice because I, I feel like I'm always hearing that commercial where it's like, tell your doctor if you've been to a region where certain fungal infections are common. I'm like, which fungal infections? I don't even <laughs> understand. But um, anyway, but you know, there people are concerned, right, about getting sick more often or, and um, I remember Dr., I, I'll say her name because I've already talked about her before, Dr. Gorman, who is my, my rheumatologist, she's amazing. Um, She said that, you know, it's been really surprising to her over like, you know, a little over 20 years of being a rheumatologist that a lot of her patients don't, don't actually get really, really sick, even though they're on these immunosuppressive therapies. And, um, and it's kind of like when you're, pregnant when I was pregnant it was like the risk of a dis uncontrolled disease flare-up sometimes outweighs the risk like of being mildly immunosuppressed on your medication right so it's kind of like your immune system is out of whack because of your RA and then you're taking the medicine to calibrate your immune system more normal to, to function more normally but it's hard for people to wrap their head around because they're like uh oh I don't want to take this medicine because it's suppressing my immune system, you know? I like the way you, you put that in that your immune system's out of whack. That's why you have an autoimmune disease. So it's, these drugs are helping us get it back into the right place. And, and, and that's, I think, maybe a helpful way for patients to think about these drugs when they're fearful. You know, we obviously have to be careful and be aware of risks, um, but you're right, not doing anything itself is a problem. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah. you're right. Control the like, disease is important. It's like you have, I almost think of it as like, it's too much of a good thing. You know, your immune system has created way too much, you know, um, antibodies that are then misguided and then attacking your own, you know, previously healthy tissue. And so you have to, to make too much into a smaller amount seems is is logical, right? You're like, okay, I'm going to make it back to the normal amount. I'm going to suppress some of the extra ones. But I think, yeah, medication hesitancy, just from a psychological perspective, is really fascinating to me. Um, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but it's such an important one because, um, you know, I think, and this is me being on social media a lot too, I see so many people being um, so scared to take medicines and having this kind of bias towards natural methods. And it's almost like, um, it's so important. I feel like I'm like, I'm like a historian, like telling people, like, just like you're like Dr. Buckner saying, you know, you were practicing for 30 years. Like you don't understand how lucky we are to have these medicines, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so sorry, I'm just like going on my soapbox, but you know, I, I think that, you know, the best advice I, I actually saw for medication hesitancy was from a nurse practitioner at the American college of rheumatology conference. She said, you know, I tell my patients, um, Think about starting a new medication, like dating, not a marriage. You know, you're, you're just, it, it's going to be out of, if it doesn't work well, it's going to be out of your system. It's not like a tattoo, you know, where you're, you're stuck with it forever, you know? So just see, and so many patients will come up to me and because I've done little videos, you know, saying, um, just 
just a different perspective. I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't take medicine. That's your choice, but you should have an informed choice, you know, that is not just biased towards natural methods only. Um, and they'll say, yeah, like I was so scared to take the medicine. I finally took it. And within like two weeks, it was like, I could open my hands up and I could, you know, function in my life. And I was so, I actually regretted not starting it earlier. Anyway, do you hear that story a lot in your guys' clinical practice, in your both clinical practice? You know, I'll, I'll, I'm sure Carmen has comments as well. I, I really saw a lot of that probably about 10 years ago. There are a lot of hesitancy when we first introduced the biologics. Um, and some patients even waiting a couple of years before they would start a drug like a TNF inhibitor. And then they'd have permanent disability because we couldn't reverse the progression. I see less of that today. And, and I think, um, although some people still are a little reticent, I, I think there's more and more of an understanding that intervening early really means that you will do better long-term. And I do point out to patients that before we had these treatments, life expectancy in patients with rheumatoid arthritis was 10 years lower than everyone else's. So yeah. it wasn't a benign thing to live with active rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so I see people accepting it more. There's always hesitancy. and um, uh, But I think you're explaining it really quite beautifully uh, and why it's important. Yeah. And I think I, I, I always tell people, you know, the... Um, for me, it's easier for me. To, I can speak personally, right? Because I, I want to be really careful not to give people medical advice. You know, even I'm an occupational therapist, but even as an OT, if I was in a one-on-one -on -one interaction, I'm never. It's way out of my scope to give someone medication advice. But I, but since I'm a patient, I can kind of be like, my perspective is, you know, the the enemy is the disease, not the medication. You know, yes, the medication. You know, the the disease is like you said, it's progressive by nature, right? For some people, progresses faster, some slower. And it's also, um, you know, reduces your lifespan to like, depending on the study, yeah, like seven to 10 years, if not controlled. So, you know, why not give yourself the best chance? And again, it's easier. It, some people would say, well, you've had good response to medication. So maybe I'm, I'm a little biased, but I think the data supports the medication, you know? So, um, but anyway, it's just, yeah, I think, uh, I think you do get a biased sample on social media because there's so many people out there that are peddling like natural cures and methods that are, so I'm glad to hear that in the clinical practice, you really do see more of a random sample, right? You're seeing <laughs> whoever got diagnosed, the only, the non-randomness is the geographic part, but otherwise you're seeing a good cross-section. And Dr. Gorman um, pointed that out to me too, that there's sometimes there's like a silent majority of patients that are just I, I tell people there's, I know people who I know from swing dancing who have RA and who just started methotrexate that alone is controlling it. They're on their, they're on their merry way, living their life. They're not posting about rheumatoid arthritis all the time because it's not dramatically affecting their life. If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up. I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks, and it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step -step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through, people who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups.
If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March, 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T in capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> Back to the research. So uh, you also have a study on uh, predicting and preventing type one diabetes, which people listening, they might not know that is an autoimmune type one is the autoimmune type type two is the type that is, can be, you know, uh, reversed through not, would you say reversed or, uh, you know, managed through, you know, through weight loss and diet and stuff. Uh, yeah, well, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, and, and it's important. Um, so I'm a rheumatologist and one of my passion is studying and treating rheumatoid arthritis, but I have spent most of my career also studying type one diabetes. So as you said, it affects younger age people and it's an autoimmune disease where you're no longer able to make insulin um, once it becomes established. So you have to take insulin externally every day. And it, it's a little different than type two diabetes, which you can manage through medications and diet. Why? am I studying type one diabetes is one question. And, and the reason is that the genes that are linked to the risk for rheumatoid arthritis are the same as the genes in type one diabetes. And in fact, I've now met so many families where mom has rheumatoid arthritis and their child comes in with type one diabetes. And so understanding that link is really important because it helps us understand what drives both diseases and also, if we find treatments for one, we can apply it to the other. So what's exciting about type 1 diabetes is that over many years, and, and uh, the work of many uh, families, patients, and providers, and scientists, we can now predict type, who's going to get type 1 diabetes. And that's because we can identify antibodies and genes that, uh, if they're there, indicate that you will at some point get type 1 diabetes. And in fact, we can predict your rate within two years. That's not helpful unless you have something you can do about it. But what that has allowed us to do is do clinical trials with medications to see if we can delay or even prevent that. And so groups, particularly uh, a, a type 1 diabetes trial net, my colleague Carla Greenbaum here at BRI was leading that in group at the time they did a study with a drug called teplizumab. That drug delayed the development of type 1 diabetes in children and younger adults uh, for up to two years. We think it may have cured some people. And what's so exciting is that the FDA approved that drug to prevent type 1 diabetes last November. So that's the first drug ever to be approved by the FDA to prevent an autoimmune disease. And that seems pretty radical. These people don't have diabetes yet, but we're gonna give them this medication. But if we think about it, it's not that radical because we do this all the time in medicine. We know that having high blood pressure puts you at a high risk for getting heart attacks and stroke. Well, so we call high blood pressure hypertension and we treat high blood pressure with medicines. And in that case, we know within five years, 3% of people we're treating would be at high risk for a stroke or a heart attack. In type one diabetes, we can now predict within five years that, or within two years, 50% of people will have diabetes. So preventing is something we're used to. We treat cholesterol, we treat high blood pressure. The time has come for us to predict who's gonna get autoimmunity and treat it. What's really exciting is in rheumatoid arthritis, we also know the markers that predict disease, and we are already starting to do trials to try to prevent that disease. So 
families where rheumatoid arthritis um, is present, we would screen those people and start trying to prevent. Um, so type one diabetes is kind of, has been out in the lead, but it's shedding a light so that we can start thinking about this in many autoimmune diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis. That is incredibly exciting. And I, I will admit, you know, despite being so involved in the rheumatoid arthritis, you know, world and doing so much, you know, research on my own and, and such, I did, I was totally blindsided when I got gestational diabetes, because I actually didn't realize gestational diabetes is more like type one than type two. I was like, oh, I'm on track with like my, you know, my weight gain and I'm eating, look, I wasn't eating perfectly. <laughs> I was eating taco time, tater tots all the time, but, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I was like, you know, I was shocked when I got gestational diabetes and, um, and it wasn't that hard to manage. Thank goodness. It was a pretty, I think mild case. I was able to manage it through, through, you know, um, dietary interventions and exercise, just making sure to exercise around when I would eat, eat carbs, but I didn't know, right. That it was, I actually didn't even know that people that I probably didn't even know that type one was autoimmune back then. So anyway, this is very extremely exciting. And, you know, I had, this is, a small side note, but related, I did a volunteer trip in Belize in 2004, um, a year after my diagnosis, actually. And um, a uh, long story short, a fellow volunteer went into a diabetic coma, had no idea she had type one diabetes. She had been feeling really off the whole time she was in Belize, but she's, she was thinking, she, she was thinking it was the weather. She was constantly sweating, hungry, craving sweets, thirsty, urinating. Oh, well, I'm in Belize. It's the, you know, and then she suddenly, anyway, it was a, it was a horrific, she, she got misdiagnosed as having a panic attack. And then they, um, gave her steroids for some reason in the ER there. And then she'd gotten, by the way, get emergency travel insurance. She got in a $40 emergency travel insurance that covered a $20,000 at the time medevac um, medical uh, airlift uh, airplane for her to go from Belize City to the University of Chicago Medical Center. And she ended up getting treated and everything. So, well, and, and the point, I think one of the points that we've learned now that we can screen for people at high risk for type 1 diabetes and identify them, we've been able to clearly demonstrate that we're avoiding those kind of outcomes because people are aware that they're at risk. So they don't go in to these really severe life-threatening um, uh, situations. So I think that's part of the good news of, of being able to predict these diseases. And, and that should happen less often once we start yes. doing this in the clinic. Well, I know people listening, a lot of them have a you know, rheumatoid arthritis are similar. They're like, wait, how do I get screened? How do you know? How, is there a way like that you can ask your doctor to screen you now for the genes to develop type one? Or how do you do that? You know, that's just being developed. Um, and we're working hard here at uh, BRI to be part of that and, and develop national screening that is in primary care. I think you'll be seeing that within the next year or two become available. Um, now that we have a drug and it makes sense to screen people because we can treat them, uh, we have to put a few things in place clinically. Um, so people should keep an eye out for that and ask their primary care provider um, and pediatricians uh, if they're in a risk group. That's that's really good. I know that I get my A1C, A1C, is that what it's called? The, the blood, um, because of having gestational diabetes makes me and RA now I know um, makes me more likely to you know develop type one. They uh, screen that every so often to make sure you know it's not out of whack. Um, so but yeah, I mean even if you didn't have a medication for it, just knowing it, then you would know the signs, right? That you that and, and know what to look for because so often these signs they don't seem so severe at first, like excessive thirst and and you know urination and craving sweets and being irritable and stuff. You're like oh you can always you know, say those were just from randomness or it's the summer or whatever. So um, that's really, that's really exciting. And um, I want to move on to um, the, uh, we actually have a, a schedule here. Um, I'm keeping myself, trying to keep myself too. So um, on the website for the Benaria Research Institute, BRI, if you've heard us use that um, acronym, is to predict, prevent, reverse, and cure diseases of the, of the immune system. So you are like, 
going for gold. Like let's, let's be ambitious. Let's not just stop with predicting and preventing let's reverse and cure. But, you know, I know that I will relating back to my social media advocacy before I tell people sometimes be careful about anyone who is telling you that they have the cure like today. Right. So this is not to say there is a cure right now, but do you think there's going to be a legitimate, you know, cure of for diseases of the immune system like let's say in my lifetime like i'm 40 i'm 41 about to turn 42 so in the next like 40 50 30 i don't know when i'm gonna live to years <laughs> this is crystal ball time uh, which one of you wants to take that one first carmen do you want to start and i'll 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 wind it up or do you want me to start <laughs> it's either way <laughs> That's this is a five thousand dollar question. Yeah, <laughs> I think that is a uh, really challenging question, um, but I really do think that a cure is possible. I think we're starting to really get a better sense of why the immune system is doing what it's doing, and really to cure something, you have to know why the immune system is doing what it's doing to be able to kind of reverse things, right, or to make it go away completely. I do think that's where studying the immune system in humans is really important, right? Because we're unique and that's why we've developed large cohorts of patients here so we can study these things in detail. Um, I completely agree with you, there's no cure right now. Um, but you know, for instance, I think one of the things we're seeing with lung disease is that you know, we are seeing sometimes fewer people with lung disease with rheumatoid arthritis. And is that because we're intervening earlier with different medications? You know, I, in some ways, consider that a cure because I'm not seeing the problem as much, um, which I think is amazing. Um, so that's sort of my, my two cents. I do think it's possible, but I do think that developing the underlying knowledge is really the critical piece. Yeah, that, that completely makes sense that we're understanding the immune system so much better and we have to complete that understanding maybe before developing the cures. What, what about you, Dr. Buckner? Yeah, so, you know, as I said, I've been doing this a while and um, if you'd asked me if we should put the word cure in our mission 10 years ago, I would have been very reluctant. But five years ago when we thought about our mission and we really thought deeply about this. And I think we can get there. And not only, I think we, I'm hoping we do it faster, Cheryl, than in the next 40 years. Yes. <laughs> but, so, and maybe that's because I've been doing this a while and I'm getting impatient. But the reason I think we can do that is because of the accelerated rate of knowledge that we have about how the human immune system works both in health, that's something we think is really important to study because our job is to get one that's out of balance back into balance so it looks healthy. And I think we have the tools to answer those questions. I think we have the first glimmers of uh, hope with the uh, early studies showing prediction and prevention. If we truly can predict and prevent, we can eliminate these diseases. You just won't see them anymore. So we won't have to cure them once they're established. But I also, we're seeing new forms of treatment that I think have the potential to do better than what we're doing now. Treatments that are targeted specifically to the disease, to the tissue that's being attacked by your immune system, not just blanket suppressing your immune system, which we're currently doing with any of our drugs. So um, I am very hopeful. Um, we can't cure these diseases yet, but I think if we work together, and together I mean, you know, scientists working together and collaborating, collaborating with doctors, patients, patient families, and our broader community and getting support from the government to do this research, all of that together, I'm really hopeful. I think we have the tools in hand. Um, it's going to take time and commitment to do it. That's, that's extremely exciting. I mean, honestly, didn't even really think to hope for that in the sense, like, I think this is going on way to the mental health side of things, but, um, like I, I really practice this approach called acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's really helpful for me because it's basically kind of like saying the null hypothesis, right. Is that things won't change. So it's like, can I 
accept and calibrate my expectations to my reality currently in a, in a mindfulness sense and also in a sense of like, you know, can I tolerate and, and make space for the present moment and find, find joy and find meaning and purpose in my life now, if nothing else changes, or even if it gets worse. And it kind of gives you that confidence to say, okay, expect the worst and then prepare for the best. Right. And then when things go better than expected, you're pleasantly surprised versus kind of hanging all your hopes on like a brighter future that might not never, you know, might never come. But um, it is definitely, I think it's possible. I'm, I'm stubborn in this way, but I think it's possible to kind of open up to acceptance of whatever is going on in the present while also having hope for the future. So, and I think that's a wonderful way to think about living with arthritis. And it's what I admire about my patients when they're able to do that so well. And in fact, I would say to them, their job is to do that. And my job is to try to fix it. So, you know, I, I need to take it to the lab and I'm inspired by them. I think you're absolutely right about as a patient, how you need to live your life as fully as possible. And Carmen and I need to keep pushing ourselves to change that reality. Yeah, no. And that's, I mean, we need both, but we need, we need a multi-prong approach. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think um, this kind of leads, oh, sorry. Did you want to say something else, Carmen? Or No, no, oh, that was okay. just, yep. I agree. You're just agreeing. <laughs> yeah, we're in agreement. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. And I think um, that's a whole, you know, it's very, I'm very fascinated by, um, by, you know, acceptance kind of being a, sounding, it sounds like a bad word at first, right? But long-term, it's really helpful, I think, for me to, um, it's been helpful for me to to really work on accepting the present moment um, and and find, find, again, find joy in the present, even if there's some pain, you know? And it's really, I think a lot of people are scared to do that. It's almost in, in a kind of almost a denial sense, like, no, 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 it's about to get better. It's about to get better. Um, you know, put your life on hold for, you know, and you can keep doing that for years. My, I finally went to therapy for the first time ever when my son was one year old. Um, and I told one of the first things I told the therapist is I think I might have some sort of postpartum mood thing. It doesn't really feel like depression because I'm not sad, but I'm like irritable and anxious all the time. And I don't feel like myself. And like, I don't know what to, you know, I don't know how to, oh, are you feeling like loss of pleasure in things you formerly found pleasurable? I don't know. I never had a baby before, so I can't compare this to anything. Like, this is like every question you ask me is impossible to answer. But, um, but she, you know, was like, I can't tell. I said, I feel weird because like my baby's not a baby anymore. He's not like an infant. Like, is this postpartum depression? What is this? And she's like, I cannot tell you. I think he was 13 months old. And she's like, I can't tell you how many people come here right after the baby turns one, because it's like, everyone's told themselves, just make it through the first year, just make it through the first year and it'll get better. And they make it through the first year and it doesn't get better. And so they're like, okay, now I need help. And I think that's the same way. It's like, I put my, I put everything on hold. Like, okay, I'm just going to figure out the first year and, and get through this. And then everything's going to get better. And then it didn't get better. And I think, so you have to learn how to cope with whatever is happening in the present, but anyway, sorry, this is like precious time to have you, you both here. So I don't want to just talk about, about um, me because the rest of the podcast, you can hear about me, but um, so in patient engagement and research, I think a lot of patients are I'll just, I'm going to project for a second, but I have donated my blood to the, to the Benaroya Research Institute with my son and he got a compliment. We, I know I still remind him of that anytime he's had to get blood work because remember how they told you that you were one of the, um, he was, I guess, one of the calmest um, little kid patients that they had had there collecting the blood. I was so proud of him, but um, anyway, you know, I, I'm fine to, to, uh, to like donate my blood, but sometimes I get nervous about the idea of like, participating in like a experimental drug because I'm like oh no it hasn't been approved so can you bust any myths like or for anxious people like me who might be like I don't know about engaging in research because I might like I don't want to be like a what do they call it like a lab rat or something like that because it's so important for us to participate so I'm saying like this, that's the wrong thing is to say that you'd be a lab rat so help me bust those myths <laughs> what would you say to res reluctant patients <laughs> so I guess the first thing I would say is that I think a lot of people, when they think about research, think about drug trials, right? They think about, I'm going to get a drug or I'm going to get a placebo. And we can learn really important things, even without doing any intervention, just by observing the immune system and how it changes, like my study during respiratory viruses, right? So um, I think that there is 
even participating at a level you're comfortable with um, in terms of like donating samples and um, those types of things, collecting clinical information can be really powerful for us. Um, and, and I, you know, I was a, um, I have participated in BRI studies myself as well. I was in the Pfizer vaccine trial. I um, talked to my mom about it. I was like, I'm going to go try this vaccine. I actually told her at the time, I'm like, I'm not sure if this is going to work, this mRNA thing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I'm going to try it. And, and she signed up too. I think the other thing too is here, it's, um, I felt very comfortable with the um, setup they have. You know, we have a really nice place where people can go. It feels almost like a, a clinic office. There are people who are dedicated to doing this kind of research, collecting blood, taking, you know, no, your first nose swab or showing you how to do it for my study. Um, and so it, it's, you're working with people who are really experienced and I feel like it's a very comfortable environment. So that's what I would say. <laughs> yeah, that's super helpful. What about you, Dr. Buckner? Yeah, I think one of the things that has been, uh, being a research participant is, is that we as the researchers really see it as a partnership. And uh, there's a lot of care taken in thinking about the participants, their rights, how their experience is gonna be. The thing that surprised me over the years, particularly there are participants who either are in a drug trial, but also those that are giving us samples to study their disease, is how much they enjoy being part of that process, being part of helping to find the answers and um, you know, having them thank me to let them be in the trial. And that's, you know, we're thinking we're asking for their help, but it's really a mutual thing. And, and so I think there's a lot of, um, I think it's really a, a good experience for everybody. Um, and we certainly appreciate uh, the, the fact that those participants, without them, none of this goes forward. We, we can't do our work without a, a partnership with, with patients and their families. That makes so much sense. It really reminds me a bit of like the legislative advocacy piece in the sense that as a patient, sometimes you can feel there's a little bit of a helpless feeling. Like let's say your insurance company is denying your medications and you're like, what can I do? Well, going, participating in advocacy, like going to Washington, D.C. or writing to your representatives is something you can actually do to help the situation. In the same way, participating in research is something you could literally physically do that can help your own future as a patient. So there's very few other ways. You know, most patients are not also, you know, Ph.D. or M.D., you know, researchers. So they can't necessarily, um, many of them are, but the majority aren't. So we can't always like lead our own trial, but you could participate in a trial. So, or in a, in a, in a study, not just a trial. Um, so yeah. I would just add to, I mean, what you're saying, I think is so true. And I think some of it is that it's because it's like an active choice, right? It's a conscious decision someone's making to participate in research, right? It's a step forward. And they are deciding to take part in something um, sort of after considering hearing about the study. And I, similar to Jane, have so many people who participate in the studies who are actually really energized by the process, I think in a way that they didn't anticipate maybe even at the beginning. So it's really true. Yeah, it's just, it's a very empowering thing, you know, mm -hmm. I think. And, um, and so, yeah, and I love your points about it being a, a, a partnership. I know some patients who are, um, you know, who have done lots of patient partnerships with even like the development of a research study. So saying, okay, for example, my friend Eileen does a lot in Canada and she, you know, kept telling the researchers, don't forget fatigue. You know, this is more when they're looking at quality of life. Like, why are you only looking at pain? No, fatigue can be more debilitating than pain. You know, so those kind of insights are so important to have the patients involved with, right? Because I think a lot of patients, again, if they don't truly understand how systemic the disease is, they won't even think to mention fatigue to their rheumatologist, you know, just be like, oh, no, I'm just, you know, yeah, I'm tired, but whatever, you know, um, I'm just gonna tell you about my joint pain. So, um, and then, so I, the, we're going to kind of start the wrapping up phase of this, although I would love to talk about both of you are so like eloquent and just passionate. It's wonderful to talk. I feel energized talking to you. <laughs> um, and do you, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask is like, what's, 
what words of wisdom or advice would you give to somebody recently diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis, you know, or a similar condition? Um, I'm sure, you know, both of you have had to do this in your clinical practice. So maybe you have like an elevator speech um, or do you have just like a, any, anything you'd want to share? Even if it repeats what you said earlier, that's fine. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've certainly, you know, had the opportunity to tell people their diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis or lupus many times. I think every individual is going to hear that a little differently. Um, you know, I kind of tell them the, the bad news is I can't hear them. Uh, hopefully the good news is they don't mind visiting me every three months. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is that we... The good news is that we can treat these diseases today. So I think it's important for people to get diagnosed, not to avoid the diagnosis. I know we all wanna avoid getting bad news, um, but getting in early, getting a diagnosis because we can in many, many cases really uh, treat people to the point that, you know, my goal is that when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they think about is not their rheumatoid arthritis. And if I get there, then that I'm really successful. And we do get there with some of our patients and uh, we definitely make people's lives better with our current medication. So treatment really has come a long way. It's good to have knowledge about it so you can care for your body and keep it going well. And I, and I always like to let them know that we're a team and they've got other people on their side. They have the doctors, the caregivers, of all types in the health system. And then they have scientists who are behind the scenes trying to, to make the future even look brighter than it is right now. That's beautiful. I think that putting it in such at, like practical terms, like the goal is to, for the first thing in the morning for you not to be thinking about the RA, that's so, that's totally like congruent with, I, I remember telling Dr. Gorman, like my definition of quality of life is just that I'm not distracted by my condition. Like it's not something that has, it, it's something that I could, that comes up, right? But it's not a constant, it's not like a constant noise in the background. Like pain can be, you know, like a noise in the background that makes it hard to focus on your life, you know? But I think that's just beautiful, um, especially because a lot of people with RA wake up with like morning stiffness. So you're like, literally, I want yeah. you to wake up not thinking, this is not a Absolutely. <laughs> And that teamwork, yeah, is is the is the goal. What about you, uh, Dr. Mikasenich? Yeah, so I think similarly, I think part of it is when you're telling someone that news for the first time, it can be really overwhelming, right? And so some of it is giving yourself an opportunity to pause, but also I do put things in a positive light. I, you know, I have had the advantage of having some of these medications while I've been practicing, right? So we can we can do things for people to make them feel better. And I think for me, you know, Jane talked a lot about the partnership for research, but it's a partnership in their clinical experience, right? It's about what they're able, wanting to try, what um, side effects they may have, how we have a dynamic relationship where, you know, they're really, um, deciding what's best for them and how I can help them by pro providing them with the right um, opportunities, choices, and those sorts of things. So I think it's a, it's a relationship, right? And that first visit's probably the hardest, but some of it is that you develop the relationship and you work together over time to really get them in a better place. Yeah. And I mean, I've gone on record saying this numerous times. My, my diagnosis was a gigantic relief. I mean, I was elated. So it's not always bad news because I had been um, experienced, you know, I call it accidental medical gaslighting. I don't think that anyone actually was like, ha, I'm going to convince her she's not sick, but I actually think she's sick. They legitimately didn't think that I was sick. They thought I was a hypochondriac. And so they kept saying, you're not sick. You're just anxious. You're just anxious. And so when I got this proof that I'm sick and that my RA factor and everything was off the charts, I was like, I literally was like, thank freaking God. Like now they're actually going to believe me because it, it was a horrific, I mean, the worst part for me was being undiagnosed by far worse than anything, anything I've experienced due to my condition. So I get so riled up thinking about this. Anyway, I've gone to therapy, like I told you. So, um, it was a, it was a night, a, an unimaginable nightmare to, to feel like 
no one's taking me seriously. It's like your house is on fire and the firemen are like, no, it's not. Like, what do you do? Who do you call when everyone that you go to says that you're just a hypochondriac? It's, you can't, it's, it's, um, was horrible. So I'm, I was like, thank you. Oh my God. There's like a doctor who's, it was like a whiplash. Like, it was like, you're faking, you're faking all of a sudden, actually you have this serious condition, but, and they're like acting so serious about it. I'm like, well, what? Like, all I care about is that you're telling me that you believe me. I don't even care what I have. Like, just give me the medicine. <laughs> like, so anyway, that's my story. But um, thank you both so much for your time. I know you're both very, very busy um, saving, saving the world, saving the autoimmune world. And I will share all your social media links um, that, um, and for Benaroya Research Institute in the show notes. Um, and so people can know maybe where to to find you and follow up on um, the latest and greatest. But thank, thank you again so, so much. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to share with you what we do. And, and it was a pleasure to hear your story as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was really fun. And I appreciate everything you're doing for the community too. It's really important. So thank you for having us. Thank you both. And um, maybe we'll have you on. Um, for a, not, not to put pressure, but maybe later on, there'll be a follow-up on, you know, what's latest and greatest in, in a couple more years. So thanks again. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you. Bye.